You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Sleep apnea. We know it makes for tired patients and angry bed partners, but in our patients with other disorders, are we overlooking this important treatable cause? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Nancy Collip, Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorder Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Collip. Thank you. Many of us are familiar with conservative treatments and the gold standard treatment for sleep apnea, nasal CPAP. But what other options do we have, Dr. Collip? A lot of patients will come to me questioning the use of surgery for sleep apnea. And surgery for sleep apnea has been around for a long time. When I first started practicing medicine, the only surgery that was available for treatment of sleep apnea was really a tracheostomy. And occasionally, nowadays, we still have to do a tracheostomy for severe patients that uh, have sleep apnea. But for the most part, nasal CPAP has alleviated the need for that drastic of surgery. The surgeries that are currently done for sleep apnea then would include ones like uvulopalatopharyngoplasty or even maxillomandibular advancement. Uvulopalatopharyngoplasty is, was actually first described in the medical literature the same year that nasal CPAP was. And there's been a lot of interest and study in the use of this surgery. surgeon basically cuts the soft palate back as well as takes any uh, redundant tonsillar tissue, the uvula, to try to expand the size of the upper airway. If you look at the literature that's examined the outcomes from this surgery uh, and what I tell patients is that it's effective about 50% of the time. And unfortunately, what we know now is that even in that 50% that it seems effective in, many of them often relapse over time. They end up on CPAP anyway. Yeah, they end up on CPAP anyway. So, you know, it's a very rare patient now that I actually prescribe that surgery for, you know, typically those that have failed or just cannot use nasal CPAP. I think the approach to many that many surgeons have now to sleep apnea is to try and figure out what part of the airway is obstructing. And, you know, they may actually do more than one surgery, almost like an upper airway reconstruction. So opening the nose, maybe doing the U-triple-P, and even advancing the lower jaw to try to increase the size of the airway. I think what we know now about the pathophysiology of sleep apnea is it's not just the size of the airway, but it's the neuromuscular control that's important. And that's why often just targeting the anatomy is not effective. I haven't for a while, but used to have patients who would sign up for a series of outpatient laser treatments, so they would only go to one or two. But is that done anymore? Yeah, it may be done. I think if that currently most doctors that are still performing that procedure would be only doing it in patients for snoring. It's actually been shown that the laser uvuloplasty actually increases sleep apnea in some patients. So patients actually will develop sleep apnea following that surgery. So that's kind of fallen a little bit out of favor. There are some other procedures that are being advocated as well. Unfortunately, there's not good long-term data on many of them. So I'm usually pretty hesitant to recommend them to patients. And sometimes when I present the option of nasal CPAP, I'll mention an oral appliance, and patients are often very excited about that versus wearing something. How, How do those work? 
So oral appliances basically are devices that the most typical oral appliance is would attach to the upper and lower jaw. So what I tell patients is kind of like a mouth guard, but it's two pieces. And then the, the lower jaw is attached by some mechanism to the upper jaw, and basically the upper jaw acts as the anchor to move the lower jaw forward. And so the lower jaws move forward, and by moving the lower jaw forward, that increases the space behind the, the posterior part of the tongue and behind the, the uvula, and that seems to improve or decrease the number of apneas and hypopneas patients have. The dental appliance or or these oral appliances do not work as well as CPAP with regards to decreasing the number of respiratory events, but they are quite effective and, in my mind, clearly are the second line of therapy for patients with sleep apnea, with success being shown even in, you know, patients that have moderate to severe apnea. So so I'm uh, they're usually uh, second on my list if a patient cannot or will not use CPAP. So most patients, there is an adjustment period, and, and what the dentists that fit these appliances do is they'll they'll set it at kind of a baseline level that, that has advanced the jaw a bit. And then as the patient becomes used to wearing the appliance, there's usually a mechanism that allows them to advance the, advance the jaw slowly over time. So they may, you know, go few days or a week or two weeks at one position and then advance it a little bit more and a little bit more to try and get past the the discomfort. Actually, most of the discomfort initially is like excessive salivation, but if you do it slowly, a lot of times it's not that uncomfortable. All right, so we, we have these options with nasal CPAP being the gold standard. How are we helping our patients now? What are we affecting when we treat sleep apnea adequately? Well, the first and foremost, typically the patient comes to you with a symptom, most common being excessive daytime sleepiness. Maybe others would include insomnia at night or unrefreshing sleep, daytime fatigue. So so you'd like to think that, you know, you want to get rid of that thing that brings them to the physician. But you know, the other things that we look for with regards to the, that we would expect to improve might include, you know, their high blood pressure, their uh, overall quality of life. Well, as an internist, that really appeals to me. Let's take hypertension, which is so common. Uh, can you can you tell us what the link is with sleep apnea and how treatment can help? The problem with studying hypertension and sleep apnea, as you might imagine, is the same people that get hypertension are the same people that get sleep apnea often as far as population groups. We know that if you look at animal models, so models in which you would make animals intermittently hypoxic at, during sleep, uh, there's both uh, rodent models as well as dog models that have looked at this. And clearly when you do that, those animal models will develop sustained diurnal hypertension. In humans, it's not quite so clear. We can't really do cause and effect as well. However, there's certainly a epidemiologic evidence that would suggest that if you have sleep apnea, you're more likely to develop hypertension. Probably the most quoted study is the one out of Wisconsin from a large cohort study called the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort. And what they did was they measured, they did sleep studies on a population of subjects in their middle ages, between the ages of 30 and 60, 
at baseline and then follow them every four years with another sleep study. And what they found in that population was that the higher your apnea-hypopnea index was at that baseline study, the much more likely you were to develop hypertension at four and eight years. So there's some association data. You can't prove causality that way, but it's clearly a link. When you look at the treatment data, it's a little murkier. Interestingly enough, there was just a paper in the Archives of Internal Medicine that did a meta-analysis that looked at the impact of CPAP on blood pressure in patients with sleep apnea. And, you know, they reviewed all the papers that had looked at this. And they did show that there was a clear impact on CPAP, well, of CPAP on hypertension. Clearly, the nocturnal blood pressure improves, but even daytime blood pressures improve as well and, and overall based on those, those studies. And just one other thing I'd like to mention is with regards to the patients with refractory hypertension. So these are people that have persistent blood pressure elevation with treatment of three or more antihypertensive. In that population, they have a very high prevalence of sleep apnea, at least in one study. 90% of the men had sleep apnea and, you know, like two-thirds of the females. When they took a a population of those patients and study them after CPAP, they were also able to show an improvement in their blood pressure control with treatment. So that's another unique population that you want to be clear to look for, for sleep apnea in. And do you recall the magnitude of the blood pressure reductions? The best study suggested uh, where they actually had a uh, placebo-controlled trial suggested that it drops blood pressure to the equivalent of monotherapy. And then you mentioned diabetes. Is there, besides the obesity, is there a sleep apnea link there? It's a little less clear in, in diabetes. Again, same thing as the hypertension, the same population that gets diabetes also tends to get sleep apnea. With regards to the uh, and, and the link, it's been hypothesized, could be due to the intermittent hypoxia that revs up the sympathetic nervous system versus, you know, some people think it's more related to the sleep deprivation and arousals that occur because there's also been associative association with diabetes and low sleep times. So nobody really knows exactly what the link is. With regards to therapy, there's a number of studies. Some have shown improvement in the diabetic control with CPAP. Some have not, and in the ones that have shown improved control, it tends to be in the patients that are not obese, so it tends to be the lower weight patients with uh, OSA that, that tend to have some improvement in their diabetic control with treatment. And uh, you mentioned that edema is sometimes seen in these patients with sleep apnea as, as a sign. Is that due to pulmonary hypertension? What's the link there with sleep apnea and pulmonary hypertension edema? Clearly, there is an association with pulmonary hypertension and sleep apnea. That's, I think that's been described in literature for many years. The pulmonary hypertension that occurs in association with sleep apnea alone tends to be relatively mild in nature. Peak uh, pulmonary pressure systolic of 30 or so is measured by echo or even exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension. So if you see pulmonary hypertension, you know, of the moderate or severe range, you, and, you know, you're thinking sleep apnea might be the cause, you might want to look for something else like thromboembolic disease or what have you. Mm -hmm. I think sleep apnea could potentially explain milder forms, but not more severe forms. It certainly may exacerbate, but probably not the sole characteristic. 
with regards to treatment, there's not a lot of study. There's There was actually a relatively good study within the past couple of years that actually used sham CPAP control and was able to show that use of CPAP did decrease pulmonary pressures by a substantial amount. The edema itself, it's not associated with evidence of pulmonary hypertension, has been thought to perhaps be due to stimulation of atrial natriuretic peptide because of intrathoracic changes, you know, when patients are trying to inspire against that closed airway, and that may cause, you know, stimulation of the kidneys to retain fluid. Nobody really knows for sure, but again, many patients will notice an improvement in that, although it's not been systematically looked at, but will notice an improvement in their low extremity edema after therapy. I want to thank Dr. Nancy Collip, Medical Director of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorder Center in Baltimore, Maryland, who's been our guest as we've been discussing comorbidities and what treatment of sleep apnea can do to help with those comorbidities. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.